All right, so let's begin. Okay, what? Wait, what episode is this? Eight. Episode eight. Yes. Okay. Episode eight. All right, get into a podcast mode. <laughs> let's go. All right, episode eight. Welcome everyone. Let's open this. Okay, we have Eric. <laughs> wow, you just stepped on my intro. I was gonna say, I have a very special guest. I'm gonna give you five seconds to guess who it is. When you were here before, he teaches Sao Bio. Look you in the eye. He also teaches Sao Bio second year. You're just like an angel. And he's just the greatest guy, man. We have Eric in the Still building. Hi, Eric, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yes, 100%. We really appreciate you uh, taking the time. I know it's very busy right now with everything going on and middle of the semester, like right now, it's exactly in the middle and everything moving fast. So we really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that song was Creep by Radiohead, if you want to go and check that out. Um, 660 million views. So you probably heard of it before somewhere, somehow. <laughs> Very yeah. popular. Yeah. Eric, I meant to ask you, how do you say your last name? I always had trouble pronouncing it. Really depends on how much you drink, but uh, <laughs> I usually say Seidlitz. Seidlitz, okay. Yeah. So you broke it down for me. When I look at your name, I'm like, oh my God, I don't know where to start. You know, <laughs> the syllables, I don't know where they start, but Seidlitz, okay, I get it. Amazing. Like so um, which courses are you teaching right now, Eric? Oh, a fair number of them. Uh, I've got uh, first year 1i06 cell bio, and then uh, moving into the second year uh, 2k03, which uh, at the moment I've got three sections. And uh, into the third year, I'm teaching uh, 3e03 cannabis, 3x03 pain and three HR3 research skills, which is a new one this year. And then into the fourth year, I'm teaching the uh, four BR6 uh, research skills and application course. Interesting. So So which one would you consider your favorite one at the moment? Hmm. At the moment, I think I have a lot of fun with the uh, 4BR6 because the students are right in the middle of doing inquiry projects where uh, they didn't have the opportunity because of COVID. So uh, there's almost 60 students all doing different things. And that's kind of exciting to, to watch it happen. Yeah, for sure. Like everyone has their own unique little project to work on. Absolutely. That's great. Yeah, and I'm sure they're like all trying to change how, what their plans were because everything was so suddenly changed. So that's interesting. They have to think about that too, um, to try to navigate around that. Yeah. Um, how is do this... you feel? Oh. Go ahead. Go ahead, Rebecca. How do you feel about online school versus uh in person school well uh i kind of hate it <laughs> uh, i didn't really uh get the full concept of what online would be until it was forced and i really don't like it because it's not very personal and i spend my day staring at 
gray screen with a bunch of initials on it. And that's not rewarding for me. And I don't do this for just one reason. I do it for many reasons. And one of them is that interaction with a lot of the students. And just seeing their face is better than not seeing, but certainly uh, being in person is much, much better. Yeah, definitely would agree with that sentiment. Yeah, I think even students would say the same thing. It's just, uh, it's not only about learning the content because I was telling Rebecca, everything was already on online platforms for us. Yeah. We were submitting things online anyways, but the fact that we were going into class and interacting, that was like the funnest part for me of coming to university. So mm -hmm. we also really miss it. But so, Eric, I was going to say, wait, Rebecca, I was going to say, Rebecca told me that you are very busy at the moment. So despite everything still being virtual, would you say this is one of the busiest semesters that you've had to, you've had to deal with? Yeah, I think I would not have been able to do it uh, if we were in person with this many courses. Yeah. So I think I've kind of loaded up on the courses for different reasons. And I would not have been able to do it if I had to go from room to room, across campus, back and forth. Uh, that would just wear me right out. <laughs> and it's very busy, uh, as you've said, at this time of year. So many things. I've got stuff to mark that was handed in in November. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. The, the, the students are probably so, uh, they're wondering where those assignments marks are. <laughs> Yeah, they are. And yeah. students are worried about being a procrastinator, but I was a student for 15 <laughs> years. I'm really good at it. <laughs> Speaking nice. of being a student, you have a very varied academic background. You have a Bachelor of Science, a Bachelor of Arts, a Master's of Science, and a PhD. So how did you um, decide to do all of these degrees? <laughs> Well, varied is an interesting word. Uh, expensive is another one. Uh, but I actually started uh, in university um, with a choice when I was coming out of high school, whether to go into science or music. You figured out which direction I went, but it wasn't that easy of a choice. And I had planned to go to a university and learn more about music because it was a big thing for me. And so I kind of said, okay, maybe I'll make more money uh, going into science. Not so sure that was the actual correct choice there, but I wanted to go into what was called at the time, the pre-med program. And this is in Manitoba way back in 1982. So a long time ago. And I just decided that I was interested in science in general, and I wanted to see what it could do for me and where I could take it. So that's kind of how I started. I kind of it expanded from there is uh, after I did a year or so, it just became not my thing to go to medicine. Uh, at that point, uh, I wasn't really that into it. And so I decided just to keep going finish off my degree, and then realized I was very interested in something that was one of my first year courses, uh, psychology. 
and I really enjoyed it, but I put it to the back of my mind uh, because I was doing science and was hoping to get into medicine at the beginning. And I decided that, you know, psychology was fun, but I would just not deal with it and not explore it anymore. And then by the time I had finished my first degree, uh, I realized I really wanted to do psychology. Got into that. I had to switch to a different faculty because the uh, faculty of science was not where psychology was. It was the faculty of arts. And the most effective way to do it was just to finish and then move on and start another degree. So I did get to... Uh, do a little bit of magic with the paperwork and you know use some of the prerequisites that I already had done but then it allowed me to do the courses I really wanted without starting at the very beginning and so I took all sorts of interesting courses all because I to and because I was interested in them not because I had any plan you know and sometimes you don't have to have a plan I certainly really didn't have a plan until I got close to my final year in that. And I did a, an honors thesis and decided that, yeah, grad school was in my future. So that's kind of where I started and then moved on to McMaster to go to grad school back in 1988. Wow. So you've been here since 1988. Yes. Yes, I have. Yeah, that's a long time. Yeah, how did then I? Yeah, go ahead. I worked. I worked for a while, like a long time, fifteen or so years at least, and then went back to grad school as a midlife crisis. <laughs> I could have got a red Ferrari. Nope, I went and did a PhD. Probably more expensive <laughs> than buying the Ferrari. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why did you decide to do a PhD? Well, I was doing lab work. I was a lab tech, uh, then got into doing animal work over the years and uh, was working at Sick Kids in Toronto for almost nine years. Hated the commute as I was living in, in Hamilton, Dundas at the time. And that was just enough for me. So got a job at the cancer center in Hamilton and ended up staying uh, with the same lab for 18 years. And at that point, uh, about, I guess, almost 15 years into it, 14 years into it, I had kind of topped out the pay scale and there was really nowhere to go up. And I was making a lot of decisions and doing all sorts of different things. And it, the opportunity came up to actually do a PhD. And so do twice as much work, get paid half as much, <laughs> and actually have doors open for me. So the year I turned 40 was the year I started my PhD. That's amazing. Was it as hard as you imagined it would be? Or what was no. your experience? What were your pre-notions and then what happened after? I don't think I would call it uh, very difficult for me because part of uh, growing into grad work and a PhD is maturing into it. And I was by that time quite mature, I would say. 
almost too mature. And so a lot of the um, angst and the politics really didn't hit me straight on because I've been dealing with it for 15 years already. And so I think it was a little easier for me because of that. And then I was able to interact with my committee almost on a peer-to-peer -peer basis many times because they knew I had the experience. I was supervising undergrads for years, you know, so it was not a big stretch. And so all it really did was allow me to take more control over what I was doing and drive the bus, as it were, to uh, go where I wanted to go in the research. And that was a, a huge thing for me. So is that when, is it after your PhD, when you started being a professor? Well, <laughs> I actually uh, did a postdoctoral fellowship in bone cancer pain uh, for a couple of years and then switched into a uh, position called research associate academic for a couple of years. So it was kind of a glorified lab tech with a little more responsibilities in some ways, but that was perfect at the time. And then got the position that was a staff position at the university as a research scientist and did that for a few years as well. So then in the middle of that, I started doing teaching with the program because they needed somebody. Chari needed some help with first year and they thought I'd be suitable because I'd worked with Chari as a collaborator for a bit, uh, doing some work in our lab. And so it worked out great for uh, being able to just dabble in the teaching, get used to it. Uh, my first year was challenging because there we faced with almost 200 people twice a week for three hours at a time. And, and there I'm teaching something that was kind of out of my area. But that was the way it was. That's how you start. Yeah, that's very interesting. I actually meant to ask you about that. So you've been on both sides. You've been on the research side. You've been like doing all of the science. And then boom, if I'm, if I'm understanding correct, you're full-time facilitating and teaching right yeah. now, right? At the moment. Yeah. Full-time so teaching. So like, what's the, what's the differences? Do you have, do you have like anything that you notice between the two? Yeah. Uh, most people that do grad school get into teaching and get faculty appointments and kind of progress. They often are doing research at the same time and they typically want to focus on their research program early on to get it established and teaching can be sometimes less of a focus uh, because they're really very, very busy and they're working to supervise students, do experiments, get money, which is 90% of your time is trying to find money to do your experiments. And it kind of dilutes the teaching a bit. And so I did it backwards, which many people will understand that's a normal position for me is to do things backwards. I did the research first, then I used my experience in research to help my teaching. And so I can provide all those 20, 30 years of research experience 
and allow the students to take advantage of that and focus on research when I was doing that, teaching now when I'm doing that. So, and research is for younger hands. You know, yeah. it does after a while, it's a little bit wearing. You think it's a young man's sport? <laughs> oh, it can be, yeah. Uh, most people that do really well in research are right in there, able to do everything physically, they're energetic, and okay. the older people look for the money <laughs> to get keep them paid. Uh, but I, I think really after a while, it, it is difficult because I was doing some pretty fine motor control stuff over the years. Like I did surgery two to three times a week for decades on different kinds of animals. And I've even intubated a mouse that was only 800 milligrams in total body weight. So I had pretty good hands, not anymore. Not possible for me anymore. Yeah, I think yeah. your area of research was also very interesting and unique. Like you actually got to do a lot of the cool things. Um, and I'm, I'm sure it was very interesting too, so. Well, honestly, all of research is interesting. That's why I like the research courses right now because it's so different all the time. You know, it's never the same thing every day. You know, it's, there's nothing dull about it. I've done a lot of different projects in different areas. And most of the time it's been uh, basic science, kind of uh, with a clinical application eventually. And uh, almost always is involved animal research because that's really what I started on uh, back in the early 80s is doing animal work. And I realized I had uh, the ability to do it and the attitude to kind of do it in a in the proper way, I guess. And that's not everybody, you know. And I never did think about being a veterinarian for some reason. <laughs> do you think if you turn back time, you would become a veterinarian? I probably would not. <laughs> well, it's. I think that's a little bit more. Um, routine for me and routine isn't the best thing uh, just my personality has always got to be something different yeah and i can see you like to try new things all yeah, the time always do that's actually a great segue into what i meant to ask you about and that was like you have like um you've accumulated a lot of the experiences that you have and you've kind of um, put them on, well, I was reading your blog and then you also have a YouTube page. And that was very interesting to me because most of the time when people think of YouTube or Instagram or websites like that, they don't think about like putting all their life experiences on there. And I meant to ask you, how did that even come about? How did you start thinking about starting your own blog and starting your own YouTube? Uh, well, that was a long, long time ago uh, when internet was dial-up that we started those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And it was really just to allow our families that were further away to see what was up and to provide pictures that you didn't have to mail them or, you know, send them some other way. And so it, it allowed 
uh, most of the family to see what was up with our family, with our kids and how things were happening. So it just became something that was fun to do uh, with many times I left it for months and if not years without updating. And I think I probably haven't updated for most of this calendar year so far. So I have to get back on doing that. And it's just kind of like Facebook, but a little less open. And oddly, I'm very open. So that's usually not a big deal. But it's, it was a nice way to have everybody who was interested to be able to see. And I don't mind putting stuff on there and describing what we're doing. It's, it is like the Facebook idea. Do you mind students reading the blog at all? Oh, no, absolutely not. I usually post the web link for the blog, uh, you know, on every course, uh, like on Avenue or on Teams, and say, don't worry, you're allowed. Snoop away. I don't mind. Because it really isn't um, very efficient to have a good relationship with students if they think you're this person up on a pedestal and that's not me <laughs> like i don't know if anybody has ever had to really struggle with my last name because i tell them not to use it you know that's just the way i am yeah is that why um you tell students to call you by eric yeah i even berate them if they can't get it after a year or two <laughs> because it's i know it's there's a certain distance in the position between student and professor, but I've been in that system long enough, long enough to know it's really a matter of time, not much different. Like students' ideas and their uh, interests are really no different than professors. You know, we've gone to school and paid more money, but we found the things that we're interested in and that's something that you're just in the middle of right now. Yeah, that's great. That's what I love about HealthSci is that a lot of our professors, they're more personal with us and they let us call them by their first names. Whereas maybe some of my elective courses, I remember a professor specifically telling us, no, it's extremely disrespectful to call them by their first name. You have to call them Dr. Blank. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's one of those things for me. I didn't do the PhD for the title. You know, yeah, it might help in some situations, maybe in a restaurant getting a good table or something. <laughs> but it, that wasn't the point, and it never was for me. Uh, and it's, it's just one of those things that I kind of feel uncomfortable when people are formal around me because that's just not my personality and i would rather be less formal and more interactive and that's the way i like to do most of my classes and make them conversations and if you've been in my courses you know i like to talk you know sometimes too much but that happens makes you perfect as a podcast guest. <laughs> so you do you have any children? Yes, I've got two kids, both male, uh, 24 and 20. 
So uh, there, uh, it was interesting when I was teaching first year students that were the same age, and that's happened a couple of times now, same age as my kids. So it was very, um, I don't know, made me feel a little bit older when that happened. I didn't feel quite as old when I first started teaching, but when your kid is that age, it makes a big difference. <laughs> yeah, I always think about that too. Like, how do my parents think of me right now? Because they're looking at me entering, you know, a career like a adulthood and all of that stuff. And I, I never stop to think about, wow, they, they probably think I'm not a kid anymore and certain things that they have to worry about, they don't have to worry about. So that's very interesting coming from a parent that had to go through that too. Yeah. There's some of us that are teaching that are on the next generation, the kids of the people they taught, not me yet. <laughs> so let's switch conversations a little bit to um, your health. So yeah. I know you were diagnosed with cancer last year or the year before. 2019. Yeah. 2019. So how, how did you feel when that happened? Well, that was a rather difficult time for me. And uh, really, I had a pain in my neck that just wouldn't go away from the summer onwards. And this, you know, we, I guess we got to uh, late September, early August, or early, early October, before anybody recognized what it was. And that's, it was actually multiple scans and going to the doctor, doing physio, trying to figure out what was going on. And nobody had any clue what it really was. And my wife's a nurse. I'm into medical things. I was a cancer researcher for decades. And cancer never once popped up on my radar. And then went to a, a an appointment. And actually, it was in the hospital on the fourth floor. So I walked down from the lab on the fourth floor to go to my appointment. And they said, nope, you gotta go and get a, a scan. I got in trouble because I didn't really want to because I had a class to teach, but they got it done. And they called me that evening and said, they haven't read the uh, CT result yet, but go to the ER now. And we go, like, why? Go now. You might not be able to breathe later. And so I had this massive tumor in my thyroid that was pushing my trachea over to one side. And I didn't know my trachea was pushed over, but my voice was changing so much so that my Google alarm clock kept thinking I was my wife. Because wow. it's like an assistant, and the voice was trying to recognize, and it would say, you know, hi, Eric, you know, whenever I talked to it, and then it was every once in a while mistaking me for my wife. I was like, wow. Google knew before I did. Wow. Wow. So went to the ER, and they said, yeah, there's a massive tumor there, and it was eight and a half centimeters across. So it was pretty big. And once you looked, it made more sense. And it was like, yeah, I think we know what this is now. Uh, we knew it was not great. And so 
and got an appointment a few days later at a surgeon who was a BHSC grad. The year before I started teaching was when he finished, so I didn't know him. And uh, he said, yep, uh, we got to figure out what this is, but it doesn't really matter because it's coming out anyways. So scheduled that and took that out. And I was in the middle of five courses uh, and had to have a lot of people backstop me uh, while I was off for surgery and thought I'd be back in about a week or so. <laughs> Not so much. And it turned out that had uh, with all the uh, pathology done that it was definitely cancer. They knew that the moment they looked it was cancer, but then the pathology came back that it was the worst option of thyroid cancer. And they said, okay, you have essentially two to six months to live. And that was it because that's how this goes. And then I did a lot of research on that. It's kind of my thing. And I can understand the cancer research in particular. And I agree with that. That's what my prognosis was. So from sometime in December of 2019, I planned that my life was done. And that was kind of, you know, the big change. And that's why it was a very difficult time. Because there I am, I thought I had a long uh, career. I had really only just begun teaching and it was going to be over by the summer. So we decided to do all the typical radiation and chemo, which is known not to be terribly effective in this kind of cancer. It was only for the purpose of making me a little more comfortable and giving me a little bit more time. And that was what we went in as, this is palliative, this is what we're going to do. The best possible case was to slow it down, because really, there isn't much out there that can do any better. So I went back to the cancer center where I had been for 15 years. You know, I knew a lot of people, and the uh, person who became my medical oncologist he did a project in the lab when he was a resident. <laughs> so I knew him for a while. The radiation oncologist, I knew, knew him for almost 20 years. And uh, we made the plan. We were went in with our eyes open, knowing what was going to happen. And then after 20 doses of radiation and a bunch of chemo, uh, did more scans and things got better. Not just better, gone. Like between the time of surgery and radiation starting, my tumor grew back quite a bit. So we knew what that was normal. And so they planned on the tumor of a certain size. They mapped it all out with multiple, multiple scans programmed their radiation machines and started on this uh, with the higher doses they could give me. It was the maximum possible dose and did all of it. Actually did not have as big of a problem as most people with radiation or chemo. Uh, 
I was probably a joy in the chemo suite because I kept telling the uh, chemo nurses the mechanism of the chemo because they didn't really know because they've been just giving these chemo things forever. And I'm saying, do you know what topoisomerase 2 is? <laughs> and a few of the students have heard me teach them about that. So, uh, you know, that was, I, I went through it with humor and my eyes were open to what was going to happen. And then things started getting better and better. And in April this past year, right in the middle of the pandemic, I ended up uh, seeing my oncologist and he said, you know, you're in remission. They can't find any tumor anywhere. And I had spots in my lungs. It was in my neck. I'd lost my uh, control over my vocal cords on one side because the tumor was right, you know, through it, uh, you know, right, the, the nerve was right through the middle. And so I didn't get through unscathed, but I'm still here. And in most of that, I still worked. And that was not on the top of anybody's list when they get cancer, is I had, for my purposes, I had a certain amount of time left and I was gonna do that. I was gonna teach because didn't wanna waste 15 years of university, you know, might as well support the family for as long as I can and go from there. So that's kind of my experience. Uh, I did buy my plaque for the cemetery already. You know, we did a lot of planning. That's our thing. My wife and I like planning. We went on a blowout trip last February during reading week. I was, uh, you know, driving a Lamborghini at 200 kilometers an hour. I was at the Grand Canyon. I was, you know, doing all sorts of things because we didn't expect that we'd ever be able to go again. So that was right before COVID hit and they were getting close to shutting things down at that point. It was only a few weeks after. Wow. That is, that is crazy. <laughs> you gotta live. And that's one of the decisions I made. I wasn't going to die. I was gonna live until I don't live. You know, that was just me. And I think probably everybody knows that I usually keep things you know, humorous, light, try to be, you know, relaxed. And that's how I approach this whole thing. Everyone says, oh, you're so positive. Well, no, that's not a change. That's just me. And that's the way I do things. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. So your perspective, did your perspective on life kind of change, like living in the moment kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. And Stacy actually came over uh, for a socially distanced dinner of, of soup from the burnt tongue <laughs> in the middle of winter. Uh, and uh, we were out in the backyard and she said, you know, that's one of those things you just can't undo. That the experience that you had, you can't undo it. And I agree with that. I hadn't thought about it that way, but really that whole thing has changed 
a lot of how I look at things. Uh, maybe not in some ways, but in many ways I do look at life a little bit differently because uh, I know it's fleeting and I know you don't have a lot of control over that. And now that I've had this happen, I know that it can easily come back. And that's actually not uncommon with this kind of cancer. Like I think um, the best possible case that I've seen in the literature is someone lived for 15 years after they had a perfect surgery, did all sorts of treatments, they lived for 15 years. I could handle that. You know, even if I don't break the record, I can handle that. But it's certainly better than two months. Like, as an example of the things we did during this experience is we decided to have the funeral all planned. So I've got a funeral playlist on YouTube music, all ready to go that I can add to now. And I also had an idea of where we maybe want to have a funeral party. And we chose a few places that were suitable, went and checked them out. This is all before COVID happened. We went and looked at venues. Imagine that going to a place, telling the people who are giving you a tour, this is for a funeral. Oh, we're so sorry. And it's, it's my funeral. Wow. That blew them away many times, but then we realized after that plan as one of the things i wanted is at my funeral i wanted an open bar hmm. just a fun thing and then i realized i'm not going to be there so we decided it'd be nice to maybe have a pre-funeral party before i go away knowing that there was kind of this time zone or time period i'd be able to to do this and then we chose a venue where I'd be able to take part in the party and it could be more like a roast and everybody could, you know, roast me for all sorts of things. And so it turns out that we didn't need to do that, but, you know, we've got those plans. We wrote them down. We know roughly what we like. And that's very freeing when you think of it, getting things arranged like that you know, can't get insurance anymore so you might as well you know do some kind of fun things you know if you're if you know things are going to happen yeah for sure like i really love how you approached all this with such a happy and like positive mindset um yeah definitely really respect that uh, and I meant to ask you, Eric, uh, yeah, I feel like you just walked us through that. And by the way, that's a very fascinating story to me, how how the what your perspective was. And also you were in a unique situation of being a patient that was so well educated in everything that was happening. And you did all of your research, all those years of research, and you had all the information. must have been very difficult at the same time, but you were aware of everything that was happening and you still approach it in this way and that's very fascinating to me were yeah, you I, I sat in the chemo suite with a needle in my arm looking through the window at my old lab mm -hmm. weird very yeah it must be like a full circle but like a weird 
like thinking about every all the, all, all your experiences at the same time too. yeah uh, we we kind of whenever we have a guest over the professors especially we want to ask those rapid fire question catch you and see if you can think uh, fast and you know on your feet um so that's how we end the podcast usually so the first thing that i have here is what's the first thing you do in a typical morning yeah. uh, in a typical morning the first thing i do is get up and feed the dog <laughs> okay fair nice okay what's your favorite hobby stained glass I make stained glass. It's on Wait. the blog. Wow. Wait, how do you, how, how does that work? How do you do that? I take big sheets of glass and use a, a glass cutter and break it, grind it down and then uh, put foil on the side, on the edges. That's kind of like sticky tape that's made out of copper. And then I solder it together with lead. Well, I've wow. never heard of that. That's how they, that's how they make glass. That's how they make certain kinds of stained glass. It's yes. called the Tiffany method. You didn't wow. think I would get away with, you know, you'd get away without me teaching you about that. <laughs> no, I, I was interested in knowing it. I'd never heard of that. That's pretty. <laughs> Take that's a look at the vlog. You'll see yeah, lots of to, things. Yeah, I have to check that out. Uh, but actually, that was, uh, oh, yeah, that, that's crazy. That just caught me off guard so much. How did you get into that? Like, I, I'm still fascinated. How, who, did you see someone doing it? No, I actually just liked the colors of stained glass. Mm -hmm. I always just enjoyed seeing it and just decided almost 20 years ago to try it. I've never taken a course on stained glass. Mm -hmm. I've actually taught many on stained glass, but never took a course mm -hmm. and just started and made a, my first project was for my mother-in-law. Uh, wow potentially a disaster. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's a very bold uh, first project. And once uh, got, uh, you know, approval, uh, my wife said, <laughs> oh, yeah, you can buy a little equipment because I'd gone cheap and didn't have any equipment other than a, a cheap glass cutter and just developed from there. And I've made huge projects. Like one was 636 pieces of glass and finished one off during the pandemic, you know, I think it was in April, I finished one off that was very large custom piece for some friends. You know, it's, it's not really for making money, but yeah. it's, it's something that you can kind of be creative. And if you're frustrated, you're still breaking glass. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's one of the most unique hobbies that like in the top 0.01% of the population. Probably, I like yeah. that. I like that. Um, okay, next one. What is something that everyone should try to experience at least once in their lifetime? Flying an airplane. Flying an <laughs> I know airplane. Most, most people won't want to, but that was a peak experience for me is flying the plane with nobody else in it. Go up and around. And wow. I did that for a few years and it was really a, a very important thing because I'd always wanted to, to do it. And the dream of flying is something that never went away. Uh, it probably will never go away for me and I can't do it anymore. My health would way, way blow that out of the water. 
water, but uh, it was really uh, something that you can say you've been there and you did it, and I can. And just because I wanted to, not because I wanted to do it for a job or whatever, it was just for the joy of it. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, my very first solo, I was in the plane for the first time on my own, and I'm taxiing out, you know, biting my nails, you know, trying to remember everything. And this big blue heron, like a crane, huge bird with a 10-foot wingspan probably, started going woof, woof, right beside me as I'm taxiing out and i knew i'm gonna remember that forever wow that's crazy they let you do it alone i'm, I'm sure you had a lot of practice beforehand oh, yeah. but yeah. i would be like can somebody please sit beside yeah. me just in case and the day before <laughs> i watched a plane crash wow <laughs> and that's why we canceled my first solo because there was a crash because it was too windy and my wife and my uh, son at the time was six i think or something like that eight maybe mm -hmm. and uh, he was looking out the window and saw a plane cartwheeling down the runway and was screaming and saying there was a plane that crashed nobody believed them until they looked and i was in the air so he thought it was me wow. i was actually uh, 1500 feet up looking down going to my instructor uh you know amar he uh didn't really pay a lot of attention because he was playing music in his headphones because he knew i was fine but you know he he wasn't paying attention i'm hitting him with my elbow going look he went oh wow. <laughs> so that was kind of a an interesting moment i was supposed to do my solo 10 minutes later we didn't do it until the next day yes <laughs> I don't blame you. It's like seeing the Titanic and then you're like, okay, I'm going to be driving the boat the next day. That's yeah. not, not yeah. a good idea. <laughs> Got to do fun things in life because eventually it's going to end. And I know that now. Uh, and I've always kind of wanted to just do some fun things just because. Yeah. And if you, you don't do those things, you'll probably look back and go, gee, why didn't I? Yeah. And now that we're young, it's the best time to do it because we're at our best, best health. And, you know, we should just experience things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so last question of the day, which cohort is the best cohort you've ever taught? <laughs> oh, man, come on. Why would you even ask that? You already know who it is. 2022, right, Eric? <laughs> Oh, the best one is 2010 that started uh, because I didn't teach them. And so they didn't have to suffer me. <laughs> Good oh, answer. Oh, wait, no, flip. I mean, Eric flipped it on us because we asked which was the best cohort that you taught, not the, oh, which one was the wow. best cohort. Yes, Next we got year. you. Next year. <laughs> oh, okay, Next there you go. Year. I could get around almost yeah. anything. <laughs> Thinking prospectively, I like it. But round of applause for the class of 2010. Yeah, definitely crazy to think crazy. about. Yeah. Anyways, thank you so much for being on this episode of the podcast and just sharing your story. It was really wonderful to listen to. You're yeah. very welcome. I enjoyed it.
Thank you so much. And uh, also, I would recommend uh, people actually go and uh, look at uh, Eric's YouTube page. So if you just search it, you have two of them. What's the second one? One of them is called SciTech, and it's the uh, more academic-oriented stuff, how to do referencing and things. Okay, Bad cool. memories, right? <laughs> and uh, uh, the other one is my family one. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, wait, Rebecca, there was this specific one video that I saw too that was very interesting that I think everybody should go watch. It was uh, it was the one from like seven or eight months ago. And I think the title was a Change in Perspective from a Scientist. Um, and I think that's something like that. If you go on the page, you'll find it. I don't exactly remember yeah. the title. Cancer Scientist to Cancer Patient. Can yes, that one. Yeah. Well, that was a crazy video. I remember watching that uh, a few months ago too. And I went back and and watched it again. Yeah, it (laughs) was very interesting. And beautiful, yeah, beautiful Dundas uh, is a local place. What what is it called? I forget the name. It's the Trail Center and the the Dundas Conservation Area. Great for exploration. Um, But yeah, that's about it. Eric, do you have any uh, closing remarks for us before we end the podcast? Well, everybody, keep doing interesting things. Keep being weird. Because you know I am, and it all works out in the end. You know, everything that you do that's interesting builds who you are. Great. Uh, okay. Have a great Monday, everyone. Goodbye. Take care, everyone. <laughs>